So Ben Carson, author, retired neurosurgeon, recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, sounds like an impressive guy, right? Well, I thought so too at first. As an admittedly left-leaning independent, I'd like to think I'm open-minded enough to give a person of any political affiliation a chance, so long as they're competent and rational. And a renowned neurosurgeon must be competent and rational, right? Well, competent perhaps in some regards, but rational? Maybe not so much. Now, this isn't meant to be a hit piece. As a skeptical podcaster, political takedowns aren't really my forte or modus operandi. But when I heard Ben Carson make some astonishing religious claims concerning the Egyptian pyramids, I couldn't just stand on the sidelines. But before I move on to debunking his claims in that regard, I suppose I should finish giving you a brief rundown of the man, during which I'll address some other claims the good doctor has made as well. And as you're probably well aware, Ben Carson is running as a Republican presidential candidate, and amazingly, he and Donald Trump are at the head of the pack. So I think the fact that this man is seeking the highest office in the country makes it all the more important to shine a light on his dubious claims. But in fairness, whatever you think of Ben Carson, his achievements as a doctor are quite impressive. He graduated from Yale, where I believe he studied psychology. He then went on to medical school, got his MD, did his residency at Johns Hopkins, an extremely prestigious hospital. Not only that, he was the director of pediatric neurosurgery there up until the time of his retirement. Some of his other crowning medical achievements include separating conjoined twins back in the 80s. He was the lead neurosurgeon of a team of about 70 surgeons during that operation. And supposedly he also developed a technique for preventing brain seizures. I'm not sure if that's related to his use of a surgical technique known as a hemispherectomy, wherein they literally remove an entire hemisphere of your brain, or in some cases, part of the hemisphere, in hopes of preventing epileptic seizures, I believe. So as a doctor, the guy's no slouch. We could try to poke holes in his medical legacy by bringing up things like um, how I believe uh, those twins he separated didn't end up faring too well. They had been connected by the head, and afterwards, I believe, one entered a vegetative state, and both ended up becoming wards of the state. And there's also a story about him supposedly leaving a sponge in someone's brain. But in fairness, I'm not a surgeon, and I imagine that when you're doing pioneering surgery or a high volume of surgeries, that there will occasionally be complications or mishaps. So I guess I'll leave the dissection of his medical career up to his peers. Before I go on to what really made my jaw drop, his religious claims, I'll first discuss certain claims he made concerning his early life that some have called into question. First, he claims that when he was young, he had a lot of trouble controlling his anger or temper. I believe he himself described the problem as quote-unquote pathological. He claims he once tried to stab a friend, but the knife blade broke in or on his friend's belt buckle. And he also claims that he once tried to hit his mother on the head with a hammer following a clothing dispute. Then supposedly he turned to the book of Proverbs, I believe it was, for help with his temper and had some sort of revelation and from henceforth became the mild-mannered Ben Carson that we know today. 
Now, CNN supposedly investigated Carson's claims, and all of the people they talked to from his past were, were surprised to hear about his alleged anger issues, and none of them could recall Carson's stories regarding his temper. Now, Donald Trump recently went after Carson for both the hammer and the belt buckle story. Trump seemed disturbed by the anecdote about Carson going after his mother with a hammer, as most of us probably are to some degree. But he seemed rather unconvinced by the knife and the belt buckle story. <laughs> and he did this whole kind of vaudeville-esque onstage routine trying to uh, debunk the story. Uh, but it's strange. It's like some sort of surrealist inversion of political mudslinging. We have someone in the spotlight claiming to have done horrible things, while the media and their rivals try to prove the opposite. Strange. I swear, guys, don't listen to CNN. I really did used to be a knife-wielding psychopath. Also, he claimed in his autobiography that he was offered a scholarship to West Point, but apparently West Point doesn't offer scholarships, and they have no record of Carson seeking admission. He also claims in the same autobiography to have had dinner with General William Westmoreland back in 1969, but the Pentagon's records indicate the general wasn't even in Detroit, where the dinner was supposed to have taken place at the time. He also claimed to have been held up at gunpoint in a Popeye's chicken, but neither Popeye's nor the Baltimore police could corroborate his story. And in fairness, that doesn't necessarily mean it never happened. And once again, to be fair, there is at least one anecdote that was called into question that actually seems to have turned out to be true. In his book, Gifted Hands, I think it is, Carson claims that while he was at Yale, he was informed that a test he had taken or was taking had been burned in a fire and that he and all the other students had to retake it. Supposedly, the rest of the students stormed out in protest, but Carson alone stayed to finish the test. It was revealed that the story about the fire was a hoax, and the instructor was just testing the class to find the most honest student, and he rewarded the young Carson with $10. The media was suspicious at first, but as it turns out, the Yale Daily News, a humor magazine, did have a tradition of performing such hoaxes and doling out small cash prizes. There's another controversy surrounding Carson that I think is much more substantial. He's been associated with a multi-level marketing drug company named Manatech. They make these kind of homeopathic alternative drugs and supplements that supposedly contain all-natural ingredients such as aloe vera and other plants. Their claims about one drug in particular actually got them in trouble with the Texas Attorney General. They claimed that this homeopathic drug could treat a variety of ailments including autism, cancer, and even Down syndrome. In 2009, they apparently had to pay out $7 million after losing a deceptive marketing lawsuit. Carson still insists that he doesn't have a relationship with the company, yet admits to doing paid speeches for them, doing a PBS special for them, and admits to even taking their supplements himself. And yet, as baffling as it is, he still insists he doesn't have a relationship with them. And for anyone who's interested in a more in-depth look at this controversy involving Manitech and Ben Carson, CNN recently did some great work on it, particularly... Anderson Cooper. Now I'll finally move on to his religious views. Carson is a Seventh-day Adventist. They're a Protestant sect that grew out of the end-time-obsessed Millerite movement of the 19th century. Seventh-day Adventists place a strong emphasis on health and diet. I believe they actually adhere 
or at least try to, to the dietary prohibitions in the book of Leviticus. Vegetarianism is quite common among Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, Ben Carson himself identifies as a vegetarian. And uh, here's a quote from him that as an animal lover, I actually kind of like, although I don't know how realistic it is. And it's regarding alternatives to animal meat. It might take 20 years, but eventually there will no longer be a reason for most people to eat meat, and animals will breathe a sigh of relief. Well, I wish that was so. I have a bleeding heart for animals, and I'm still a a conflicted meat eater. And I do think that is one of the big moral issues that humanity will ultimately have to wrestle with. And hopefully we will, as a species, find uh, some alternative path other than eating animal meat. But I don't see it happening anytime soon. 20 years seems like a a much too short guesstimation, in my opinion. So here's one of the stranger claims that Ben Carson makes. He says that God helped him ace a chemistry final by giving him all the answers in a dream. Here's a little bit from Right Wing Watch. I know not the most unbiased source, but the story is all over the net, and I just wanted to quickly give you a synopsis. God helped Ben Carson ace his college chemistry final by giving him all the answers in a dream. By Kyle Mantila, it looks like. And this is dated uh, 5-7-2015. Republican presidential candidate Ben Carson was among the featured speakers at the official National Day of Prayer gathering in Washington, D.C. this morning, where he told the story about the time that God helped him ace his college chemistry final by providing him with all the answers in a dream. As Carson explained it, his goal of becoming a doctor was nearly derailed in his first semester at Yale University when he was failing his chemistry class to such an extent that he would not have been able to pass even if he managed to get an A on the final exam. Fortunately for him, this particular professor had a policy that anyone who was failing the class could receive double credit on the final, and so Carson asked God for a miracle before committing himself to study for exam the night before. But instead of studying, Carson fell asleep and had a dream in which he was alone in an auditorium, as some nebulous figure, in quotes, wrote out chemistry problems on the blackboard. When I went to take the test the next morning, it was like the Twilight Zone, Carson said. I opened that book and I recognized the first problem as one of the ones I dreamed about, and the next, and the next, and the next, and I aced the exam and got a good mark in chemistry. It worked out okay, and I promised the Lord he would never have to do that again. My main problem with that story, other than the fact that I don't believe in God, is the idea that he supposedly remembered all the questions and answers from his dream. That would be a miracle. My whole life I've had to struggle to remember a dream for more than 15 minutes after waking. And the more time goes by, the more the details seem to slip away. So does that mean Ben Carson technically cheated? Someone else gave him the answers? I thought he believed in doing the work for yourself and picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. Oh well, I'm being facetious if you can't tell. So now on to the one that really got my proverbial goat, the pyramid story. Ben Carson said during a 1998 commencement speech that he believes the ancient Egyptian pyramids weren't burial places, but were grain silos built by the biblical figure Joseph. Yes, you heard me right. I'll play the clip for you now. My own personal theory is that Joseph built the pyramids in order to store grain. Now, all the archaeologists think that they were made for the pharaoh's graves, but, you know, it would have to be something awfully big when you stop and think about it. I don't think it would just disappear over the course of time to store that much grain. And, uh, you know, 
various scientists have said, well, you know, there were alien beings that came down and they had special knowledge and that's how they were. This, you know, it doesn't require an alien being when God is with you. you know? Yeah, well, the pyramids were made in a way that they had hermetically sealed compartments. You wouldn't need hermetically sealed compartments uh, for a sepulcher. You would need that if you were trying to preserve grain over a long period of time. And that last part of the clip is actually of Ben Carson recently doubling down on that theory. Now, he says it's his own personal theory, and I don't know if he means he invented the theory or it's just the theory he personally prefers. And if Chris Weber is listening to this, he's probably going to take offense for me using the word theory loosely in the vernacular sense. <laughs> but, um, but I hope he's not claiming that this quote-unquote theory is his own brainchild, because I just learned recently that this isn't new. This is a Christian idea that goes back to the Middle Ages and, in fact, can be traced all the way back to Gregory of Tours, if not earlier. But even though I've already heard it, listening to it again, I'm still rendered almost uncharacteristically speechless. And others have made this point too, but what serious scientists believe the pyramids were built by aliens? Probably none, unless they're as fringe in their beliefs as Carson himself. It reminds me of how once I was watching a reality show about renowned Egyptologist Zahi Hawass and a handful of his college students who were learning to be archaeologists. One of the students brought up aliens building the pyramids, and man, it was not pretty. If you're familiar with Zahi Hawass, he can be uh, very passionate, shall we say. But my first thought when hearing this was, the pyramids would make terrible grain silos. They're not hollow. They're solid structures containing some narrow passages in what are obviously burial chambers complete with Egyptian art and hieroglyphics pertaining to the afterlife. We know the Great Pyramid was built for the pharaoh Khufu, or Cheops in Greek, and it's thought that the three nearby smaller pyramids of the Giza complex were for three of his wives. There's also nearby mortuary temples, and I believe altogether the area is referred to as the Giza necropolis, including the Sphinx and some cemeteries, a work village, um, and of course the pyramid complexes of the pharaohs Khafre and Menkare. I believe Khafre was Khufu's son. It's thought that the Great Pyramid was completed around the middle of the 3rd millennium BCE. That got me to thinking about the historicity of Joseph. I did some digging, and it seems that scholars are divided on the subject. The majority seem to think that there's no definitive proof for Joseph's existence, and that the narrative is probably just a literary composition. Some think Joseph is what is called a summarizing figure, a literary character meant to represent a certain period perhaps that of the glory days of the Hyksos. And there are some other, admittedly, who do think that Joseph could have been a real figure and think that someday more conclusive evidence may turn up. And for the sake of argument, if Joseph actually did exist, he probably existed after the construction of the Great Pyramid finished. Remember I said the construction concluded supposedly around mid-3rd millennium BCE, and it's thought that if Joseph did exist, he would have been around during mid to late 2nd millennium BCE. Here's a quick bit from BibleArchaeology.org. 
Mainline contemporary scholarship and the Bible's own chronology are in accord in dating Joseph somewhere between 2000 and 1600 BC. This time frame includes two important periods of Egypt's history, the Middle Kingdom 2000 through 1786 and the Second Intermediate Period 1786 through 1570. And also, we should take into consideration that the book of Genesis itself, in which the narrative is found, was probably written at the time of the Babylonian exile. So around the middle of the first millennium BCE, uh, in the sixth century more precisely. But whatever you think of Joseph, uh, due to what we know about the pyramids, common sense should be telling you loud and clear that he didn't build the pyramids, and they certainly weren't grain silos. Well, okay, here's where I really start to dislike the man. I'll briefly talk about some of his controversial views, beginning with his thoughts on evolution. In 2006, Carson stated, I don't believe in evolution. I simply don't have enough faith to believe that something as complex as our ability to rationalize, think, and plan, and have a moral sense is what's right and wrong just appeared. Well, it's because it didn't just appear. (laughs) We know that through evolution... Creatures became more and more complex over time, including their nervous systems and their levels of awareness. And as far as a moral sense goes, as I've said many times, I believe we're evolutionarily wired for both altruism and empathy and for tribalism and violence and group-out-group stuff. And there's many social animals that behave quote-unquote morally. But I've spoken a lot about evolution and morality in past episodes, so I'll spare you that uh, diatribe for now. And here's a bit from Wikipedia. It says, in a 2011 speech to Seventh-day Adventists entitled Celebration of Creation, Carson said Darwin's theory of evolution was encouraged by the adversary, which must be the uh, devil, and it has become what is scientifically politically correct. With the adversary being interpreted as a reference to Satan, yeah, that's what I thought, Carson also labeled the theory of the Big Bang as ridiculous, saying, here you have all these highfalutin scientists, and they're saying it was this gigantic explosion and everything came into perfect order. I mean, you want to talk about fairy tales. That is amazing. Carson defended his comments in 2015, saying in regard to the scientific concepts, I'm not going to denigrate you because of your faith, and you shouldn't denigrate me for mine. So here's a guy who's supposed to be a man of science, a gifted neurosurgeon. And he considers believing in the Big Bang and evolution to be matters or articles of faith. The fossil record, DNA evidence, what we know about the expansion of the universe. These things are articles of faith? No, it's evidence. And uh, it continues, in 2014, Carson rejected the validity of carbon dating as it really doesn't mean anything to a god who has the ability to create anything at any point in time. Carson further argued against evolution, staying his disbelief in the possibility of the complexity of the human brain arising from a slime pit full of promiscuous biochemicals. And biogenesis, you know, the, the starting of life, that's something that scientists are still wrestling with. But we know how the complexity of the human brain arose. We can basically peel back the evolutionary layers from the neocortex all the way down to the reptilian brainstem responsible for autonomic functions. We know the brain developed over time through evolution. And here's a quote 
from an interview he did with uh, CNN's Chris Cuomo, and this regards homosexuality. A lot of people go into prison straight, and when they come out, they're gay. In fairness, I guess he followed up by, by saying later on through social media that he realized that my choice of language does not reflect fully my heart on gay issues. I do not pretend to know how every individual came to their sexual orientation. I regret that my words to express that concept were hurtful and divisive. For that, I apologize unreservedly to all that were offended. And I'll actually give him credit for that. Some people might view it as, uh, you know, gutless backpedaling, but I actually hope that he was sincere. And as apologies go, it was fairly well worded. But this idea that homosexuality is a choice, I think sometimes there can be environmental factors. On the show before, I've talked about, say, cultures where homosexuality was more pervasive, say, ancient Greece, or even in the modern world, in areas of the world where the genders are raised separately. But generally speaking, I think the human sex drive is so strong that I couldn't imagine choosing your sexual orientation. As a straight male, I've joked a lot on the show about how I knew from a very early age that I was attracted to women, and I didn't need anyone to tell me to be, uh, you know? I couldn't imagine changing my sexual orientation if my life depended on it, which in prison it just might. I think it, it probably is true that there's a high level of gay sexual activity in prisons, Part of it is probably a power or domination thing. Part of it is most definitely probably because there aren't any alternatives. And there probably are a certain percentage of the prison community who just happen to be gay. But even if homosexuality was a choice, I don't believe there's anything inherently wrong with two consenting adults of the same sex wanting to have a sexual or romantic relationship. So for me, the point is moot. Oh, and then this is a beauty. Uh, he said to Wolf Blitzer, and this is in regard to gun control and the Holocaust, likelihood of Hitler being able to accomplish his goals would have been greatly diminished if the people had been armed. And uh, supposedly this was echoed in a book he wrote entitled A Perfect Union, where he argued that Nazi gun control was one of the reasons for the Holocaust. And then a uh, Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League commented on this by saying, it is mind-bending to suggest that personal firearms in the hands of the small number of Germany's Jews, about 214,000 remaining in Germany in 1938, could have stopped the totalitarian onslaught of Nazi Germany when the armies of Poland, France, Belgium, and numerous other countries were overwhelmed by the Third Reich. And that was my thought. And there were, we should, there were Jewish freedom fighters. Uh, there was a resistance movement. But how much can even armed citizens do against a massive army that has an air force and tanks, etc.? And as this guy rightly points out, the Allied forces had trouble stopping Germany and they had fully equipped armies. Then regarding his views on abortion, he's pro-life in of itself, that doesn't bother me. I've spoken on the show before about how my own views on abortion kind of mirror those of the late Christopher Hitchens. I believe in a woman's right to choose, but I don't think that abortion should be taken lightly. And I don't think that most people do take it lightly, least of all the women who actually uh, make the difficult decision to have one. But I understand 
the reverence for unborn life. I do. But he's gone as far as comparing women who have abortions to historical slave owners. And he opposes uh, abortion even in cases of incest or rape. And I find that not just when Carson says it, but that that's a stance that's been around for a long time. And I find it revolting coming out of anyone's mouth. This idea that if a woman is sexually violated, she can be told that she has to see that pregnancy through to the end. Words can't describe how abhorrent I find that. Then he's against fetal tissue research. And uh, here's a quote, there's nothing that can't be done without fetal tissue. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I don't know how true that statement is. But it seems to me that the scientific or medical consensus is that that fetal tissue is very important to things like stem cell research. And then an OBGYN, a doctor by the name of Jen Gunter, discovered research that Carson had performed and published using tissue from fetuses. Uh, And here it says aborted in the ninth and 17th weeks of gestation. And then he made a, a statement defending his research. And he says, to not use the tissue that is in a tissue bank, regardless of where it comes from, would be foolish. Why would anyone not do that? Carson also told the Washington Post, if you're killing babies and taking the tissue, that's a very different thing than taking a dead specimen and keeping a record of it. Well, I agree with him a bit there that no matter how you feel about abortion, it makes sense to at least do research on the existing tissue instead of letting it go to waste. And there's probably some that are much more sanguine about the issue and would probably think that we shouldn't even do research on existing tissue. So I will give him a little bit of credit for that. And uh, lastly, and this is no surprise, he rejects the science, and I'm reading from a Wikipedia article here, Carson rejects the scientific consensus that human activity causes climate change. In November 2014, he said there's always going to be either cooling or warming going on, and he found the debate on climate change irrelevant and a distraction from protecting the environment. And to be honest, I'm not particularly well-versed on the subject of climate change, It seems to me, just from my media consumption, that the consensus seems to be uh, in the scientific community that climate change is real, and we need to be vigilant about the possible impact it could have in the future, possibly the near future. So I think you have to be at least open-minded about it and take the subject seriously, because you might say, ah, it's just the weather, you know, who cares? But if significant changes can have a dire impact on the environment and affect our quality of life or even threaten our survival as a species, that's something to take very seriously. And we shouldn't just write it off. So that's Ben Carson. That's one of the guys seeking the highest office in the land. And I'm excited because not only is this episode going to be on my personal feed, you know, appearing as an episode of The Week in Doubt, but it's most likely going to appear as an episode of Skeptical Politics as well, the other podcast I do with Chris Weber. 
So I hope the Week in Doubt audience enjoyed this, and I hope the Skeptical Politics audience enjoys it as well. I'll skip all the usual plugs except for, I'll mention, uh, I lost one Patreon uh, supporter this week. I was up to five. I'm now down to four. Still extremely grateful for you four guys. Uh, I'm, I hope, and this sounds kind of bad, I was going to say, I hope the person discontinued their support for financial reasons, and not because, you know, they got sick of the podcast or something. Probably not the best way to word it. I hope you're not having financial issues. Um, but I know people work hard for their money. And sometimes you got to try to uh, cut some expenses from your budget. And in fairness, as I always say, you're obviously free to withdraw your Patreon support at any time. You can become a Patreon supporter by going to patreon.com slash theweekendout, and you can contribute as little as um, 99 cents or a dollar a month. And once again, just to try to express some of my gratitude for you guys who are supporting the show through Patreon, I, I want to give the, the four of you, uh, the four remaining patrons, a, a shout out. So we have 666, the number of the beast, Siddharth Joshi, Mark Seafried, and Tim Danaher, or is it Dinar? Sorry if I butchered your name, Tim. I also see Tim on the Weekend Out Facebook page, and I really appreciate your support and your interaction on the Facebook page. I, I love knowing that people are listening, and uh, I love it when they, when they reach out, even if it's something as simple as liking a post. But with that being said, um, this episode is a wrap. Until next week, thanks.